and protests erupting at the world's biggest iPhone factory. Chinese workers smashing windows and facing off against police officers. A Taiwanese colonel charged for taking bribes from China. That's for promising to surrender in the event of war with Beijing. The first overseas Space Force unit activates. It's based in the Indo-Pacific region, a move aimed at countering China. Republicans in the House taking aim at TikTok. A letter to the social media company's chief executive suggests the platform may have misled Congress. And China securing one of its biggest ever natural gas deals with the world's top exporter. $60 billion are on the table, but Europe still on the fence over energy goals. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A clash is breaking out at the world's largest iPhone assembly site. Chinese workers now facing off against police. Videos have captured tear gas, destroyed fences, and smashed windows. China has scrubbed footage of the scene from the internet, but some clips made it online in the free world. Here's a closer look. A violent protest erupting at the world's biggest iPhone factory in China. Workers throwing broken fences at authorities in hazmat suits. The other side backing off in the face of flying debris. A video clip circulating online saying police used tear gas and that the workers fought back. In another clip, a man heard shouting, police are beating people up. The clash broke out at a factory operated by Foxconn, Apple's largest iPhone maker. This factory in China's Zhengzhou province is expected to churn out over 80 percent of the latest iPhone models. But China's zero COVID-19 policy is getting in the way of Apple's holiday plan. Last month, Apple said shipments of high-end iPhone models could be delayed. That's after state-imposed lockdowns hit the factory. Many workers fled the building amid local authorities' strict lockdown policies. Local authorities tried to recruit workers to help resume production, but reports say resentment has been building among workers over pay and sanitary conditions. Video clips show large crowds of workers shouting, down with Foxconn. One man tried to smash the divider window of an on-site COVID testing booth in the factory. Videos related to this protest have been scrubbed from the Chinese internet. In a statement, Foxconn said violence erupted at its Zhengzhou factory and that it would communicate with its workers and local authorities to prevent similar incidents from happening in the future. Chinese media reports say that for new workers choosing to leave the Zhengzhou factory, Foxconn would pay them over $1,000 in subsidies. Juliet Song, NTD News. China appears to be gearing up for war with Taiwan. As for what's in its war playbook, a recent national security case in Taiwan seems to expose one strategy. On Tuesday, prosecutors in Taiwan charged a Taiwanese senior military officer for taking bribes from a Chinese agent. That's to surrender if a war ever broke out between China and Taiwan. The colonel was given nearly $1,300 each month from China after he was recruited as a spy for Beijing in 2019. He even reportedly took a photo holding a signed letter promising to surrender to China if war started. Taiwan's defense ministry charged the officer with corruption and harming state security. 
saying the case highlights the serious threat posed by Beijing's espionage. The U.S. has long been concerned about Taiwan's ability to keep technology and other secrets out of Beijing's hands. China views Taiwan as its territory and has never renounced the use of force to bring the island under its control. The Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan. Washington taking a major step to deter a potential war. On Tuesday, the U.S. activated a Space Force unit in the Indo-Pacific region. It's largely to counter the Chinese Communist regime's aggression. It marks the first Space Force unit established in an overseas command. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. By order of the Secretary of Defense, United States Space Forces Indo-Pacific is hereby activated, effective 22 November 2022. On Tuesday, at Camp H.M. Smith in Hawaii, the Indo-Pacific Command, or Indo-PACOM, became the first combatant command to host a Space Force unit. The commander of Indo-PACOM, Admiral John Aquilino, shared his thoughts at the ceremony. It's no accident that it happened here in the Indo-Pacific first. The most consequential theater with four of the five identified national security threats sitting in this theater, whether it be the People's Republic of China, the Russians, the North Koreans, or violent extremists. Also at the command ceremony was the Chief of Space Operations, General Chance Saltzman. He explained that the Space Force unit will help deter a potential war with China. Brigadier General Anthony Mastelier is now the commander of the newly activated Space Force unit at Joint Base Pearl Harbor. Space underpins every aspect of war fighting here, where we must overcome the tyranny of distance on a daily basis. Where space, act, where space enables access to otherwise denied areas to increase range and lethality of our weapon systems, and where space is key to our ability to project power at the time and place of our choosing. But any military satellites and equipment the Space Force launches into space may not be free from attacks. In January 2007, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, fired an anti-satellite missile against one of its own inactive weather satellites. And the Pentagon expects the CCP to continue pursuing anti-satellite weapons. Jason Perry, NTD News. The Space Force unit will provide satellite-based navigation and communications. It will also send out warnings when missiles are launched in the region. The Indo-Pacific region has become more important to geopolitics as tensions in the region grow. The U.S. Indo-Pacific Command is also garnering more attention from the media. The agency is the largest combatant command in the U.S., stretching from the west coast of the U.S. to India and from the Arctic to the Antarctic. Top House Republicans are setting their sights on TikTok. That's over suspicions that the popular social media app may have misled Congress about just how much user data it shares with China. GOP Congress members Kathy McMars-Rogers and James Comer wrote to the company's chief executive Tuesday, saying some of the information TikTok provided during the staff briefing appears to be untrue or misleading. The letter cited the app's claim that it does not track U.S. user locations. 
The lawmakers also asked TikTok to provide drafts of any agreements with the Biden administration that would allow the app to stay active in the U.S. TikTok did not immediately respond to a request for comment. TikTok's owner ByteDance is headquartered in China. Under Chinese law, domestic companies must hand over any and all data to the Chinese Communist Party if officials ask for it. That has sparked concerns about American user data falling into Beijing's hands. Republicans will take control of the House in January following midterm election wins. The letter could be a sign of tough scrutiny they plan to put on Chinese companies. The U.S. is among several nations taking issue with the app. India's government banned TikTok back in June 2020. A $60 billion commitment. Beijing securing its biggest ever energy deal with Qatar, the world's top natural gas producer. This while Europe remains undecided, faced with soaring energy prices. NDD's Juliet Song has more on that. The Gulf state is the world's second largest exporter of liquefied natural gas, or LNG. About 20 percent of global exports come from the Middle Eastern country. The $60 billion agreement spans 27 years. Under it, China would buy 4 million tons of LNG from Qatar Energy every year. Qatar's energy minister says he's pleased with the deal. Uh, Long-term deals are important for both seller and buyer uh, to make sure that the sustainability uh, of, of supply uh, is there for countries that uh, need LNG for the long term. Over in Europe, countries are also eyeing Qatar's energy. But negotiations have been stalled as Europe struggles with the dilemma. On the one hand, it's looking to use LNG to replace Russian gas. Russia used to supply Europe with 40 percent of the natural gas it needs. But unlike China, many European countries are reluctant to commit to long-term deals. That's because they're looking to phase out fossil fuels to meet climate goals. All the delegation from China that made it. Qatar's uh, energy minister said the deal would solidify the bilateral relations between China and Qatar, on top of meeting China's growing energy needs. A leading financial institute is shutting down its consulting business in China. U.S.-based credit ratings firm Moody's is laying off more than 100 people in its offices in Beijing, Shanghai and Shenzhen. That's according to a Reuters report citing insider sources. On the other hand, Moody's credit rating business will continue to operate in the world's second largest economy. It provides financial analysis to financial institutions. Moody's said recently it was taking steps to align its global workforce with current economic conditions. Beijing's zero-COVID-19 policy is driving some foreign companies partly or completely out of China. Others are considering a shift to other countries. Moody's decision to close its China-based consulting follows changes in the country's banking sector, as it increasingly favors domestic services suppliers. China's two-year clampdown on Internet giants seems to have entered a new phase. On Tuesday, China's market regulator voiced a plan to amend a law on unfair competition. The change would target Internet companies found guilty and slapped them with fines as high as a 5 percent share of the firm's annual revenue. But what qualifies as unfair competition? China's regulator says Internet giants are barred from using data, algorithms, technology or capital advantages to create an unfair boost. 
That means algorithms can't give users unreasonably different treatment or restrictions by analyzing user preferences and habits. Another new rule would block a business in a position of power from forcing a person or entity to sign exclusive agreements. What's more, the regulator says companies should not block external links or services from their platforms without reason. Penalties for violators range from 1 to 5 percent of annual revenue. Legal representatives could also be subject to fines, equivalent to a range of $14,000 to $140,000. The changes are open for public comment until late next month. The U.S. appears to have dramatically changed its stance on China in recent years. But is that the true picture? Michael Pillsbury, director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute, says very little has actually changed on the federal level. He authored the book The Hundred-Year Marathon, China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. American thought leaders host Yanni Akelik sat down with him to learn more. Okay, on the surface, it seems there's been a sea change in the understanding of the threat of the Chinese Communist Party, certainly around the general public. Mm -hmm. But what really has changed since 2013 when you wrote this book and you offered some prescriptions about how mm -hmm. to... 2016. To, mm -hmm. Sorry, pardon me, 2016. Yeah. Very little has changed. The basic structure uh, of our largest embassy in the world, 2,300 people, being in Beijing, that has continued. The 50 federal agencies that are in the embassy that cooperate with China. We had more than 60 agreements at one time between the National Science Foundation and their Chinese counterpart, the Ministry of Science and Technology, that the U.S. would share quickly any new scientific discovery made by the National Science Foundation, which funds scientists and universities around the country. And the Chinese at one point, you asked me when I began to change my mind, at one point they said, you know, you've been somewhat slow in transferring these new scientific discoveries to us. We read about this in Scientific American. In this case, it was as nanotechnology. And it, we haven't received it yet here in Beijing. So the US upgraded our embassy and created a minister counselor for science and technology, whose duty was to facilitate these scientific transfers to China. And how much have federal government departments been aiding China for how long and under what authority? Because he never went to Congress to ask to do this. <laughs> but I would say, if you, just, if you ask me what exactly has changed since the good old days, the arms sales have been cut off. We continue to encourage the European Union to maintain its arms, arms embargo. Um, the rhetoric has gone way up. Secretary Pompeo talking about the Communist Party as being evil and not the same thing as the Chinese people. That was never said by presidents or secretaries in the cabinet before. I would say the level of investment and trade is going up. I mean, so we are not punishing China through investment restrictions or... Now there's talk about more export controls. The entity list, you know, 300 companies mm -hmm. in China put on the entity list. But as has been made public in the Wall Street Journal and others, you can apply to continue your trade and sales to Chinese companies that are on the entity list. And the Commerce Department has been very generous with approving these relationships continuing. 
Coming up, what does the Chinese Communist Party's strategy against the West look like? How can Americans face U.S.-China relations as they are now? Michael Pillsbury, director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute, gave insight on steps he says the United States should take to really make a difference. More on that in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. What is the Chinese Communist Party's endgame? And what steps can the United States take to really make a difference? American thought leaders host Yanya Kellick spoke to Michael Pillsbury, director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute, about his take on restructuring the American government and more. What is the Chinese Communist Party's endgame, in your view? Well, they've been pretty clear. Um, Xi Jinping's speech, he is portraying the world as threatening to China. And he is calling on the Communist Party to help protect China from these threats, the main threat being America. He didn't use our, the word America. The, he likes to say things like the hostile foreign forces. So he's mobilizing the Chinese Communist Party for a world in which America is a threat that has to be neutralized somehow without stirring up the Americans even more. And the, and the, the Chinese debate this. Without creating, without uh, initiating a Sputnik moment, yes, basically. exactly. The Chinese nightmare right now, the Chinese Communist leadership's nightmare, is they will overreach. They will do something that inadvertently provokes the Americans. And I, I'm talking to some Chinese delegations. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Global Times has a very nationalistic former editor named Hu. I've talked with him. So he writes a column saying Nancy Pelosi's plane, if her plane is escorted by American military jets and they're going into Chinese territory, we should shoot down the plane. <laughs> so this is a worldwide story, right? China threatens to shoot down Nancy Pelosi. And the, I think the reaction startled Communist Party leaders, because Global Times' retired editor shouldn't have any attention from the world press. But what he said was so outrageous and so vivid. Shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane, and she has six members of Congress with her. Well, it's a World War II starting kind of, World War I starting kind of incident. So the Nancy Pelosi trip activated a kind of wake-up call in Washington. What? Why would they think they could shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane? Well, because they believe Taiwan's part of China. Well, what do we say? And then you get this strange commentary coming out of the federal government. Well, China's not exactly a part of China, but it's sort of a part of China. <laughs> right, Taiwan, right, right, right. Yeah. It's the so-called one China policy. Sorry, I meant to say Taiwan. So. I noticed a lot of members of Congress, and they ended up drafting this wonderful legislation called the Taiwan Policy Act. They started asking, you mean Taiwan's not a country? I've been there several times, and members of Congress say, I, I met all these presidents in Taiwan. They're really nice to us. No, they're not a country, according to the executive branch. Well, does China, Taiwan belong to China? 
well, Senator or Congressman, it's complicated. <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that Chinese communist leaders worry about, that they see America as generally speaking asleep about the China threat beyond rhetoric. So if they push too far, the danger they know is something really serious will be done to them, such as controls on American investment in China. Do we really have $2 trillion in investment there? Where is it? Who approved this? And there's some legislation on that right now. It has very few sponsors. But what, what do you see as sort of the immediate steps that would actually make sense to countering this, you know, this marathon, to, to slowing or stopping this marathon? One of the recommendations, it's almost the very first one of the 12 in the chapter on recommendations, is really very simple. And it surprised me that it hasn't taken off and been implemented. I said, basically, we need a White House presidential report on the competition between the US and China, who is ahead in, in various fields, whether it's supercomputers, chip design, number of aircraft carriers, there could be 50 or 100 indicators. But we need to understand how are we doing in this competition. This has been resisted. This idea has been resisted. And I've, I have a friend who's a panda hugger who still thinks I, you know, betrayed the panda hugger cause. He said, you know, if there were a presidential annual report on competitiveness with China, it would show the Chinese are surpassing this in a lot of areas. And that would just produce a kind of hysterical panic and anti-China sentiment. <laughs> and I said, well, if it comes out that way, he said, you know how it's going to come out. So we don't want this study. We don't want a presidential competitiveness report. Now, that wouldn't hurt the feelings of the Communist Party of China. It wouldn't start a war. It's an internal American study to show the Congress and the public, this is how we're doing. They're ahead of us in supercomputers. They're ahead of us in all kinds of things. And the trend is not good. So short of having a Sputnik moment or a Pearl Harbor attack, a report like this could have some impact. And I once asked our Secretary of Commerce, did you ever try to do this? He said, yes, it's very important. But I could not get agreement on what indicators to measure. Because obviously, if you cherry pick things that make America look good, then the report will come, the headline will be, China will never surpass America. So to me, it's an interesting um, kind of exercise to see what would be the result of such a study. Are we really, really far ahead? So we can be complacent? Or are they just at our heels almost? Run faster? I think we need to know this, but it's quite striking to me, the opposition to it. Having a realistic view mm -hmm. of what's going on, and it strikes me that needs to be changed. How do you see that happening? This could be require an enormous effort. We might need to restructure our government. We might need to have a large um, capacity to deal with China that we don't have now. But now that they are a strong power, it seems a little strange to me that we still have a very teeny group at the various government departments and an even smaller group in the White House that deals with China. This was not the case in the Cold War, 1947, when one 
piece of legislation created the U.S. Air Force, the CIA, the National Security Council, and a number of other steps in the covert action area to try to overthrow the Soviet Communist Party. We are doing none of that now with China. None of it. We have no new organization to deal with the China threat. It's one of Kevin McCarthy's promises. If I'm Speaker of the House, I'm going to create a select committee on China for all the committees of the, of the House to belong to. Mm. And he's talked about what it's going to do, what it's going to build on, and who will be the chairman of it. So that's moving in the right direction, right? He's recognizing the scale of the China challenge. But the Senate has no counterpart uh, legislation. But I do think we can review the past record, how we got here, and derive some lessons that might at least change a few minds. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Thanks for watching. But before you go, a quick announcement. Our program will observe a one-day pause for Thanksgiving this Thursday. China In Focus resumes on Friday. From our team to you and yours, we wish you a wonderful holiday.